The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. I'm John Taffer, best-selling author, bar rescue guru, and soon your new best friend. I've got a lot of shit for us to talk about, so stop making excuses and let's get started, because this gets real right now. All the way from the studios at Podcast One, here's John Taffer. Well, here we are, episode number 36 of my No Excuses podcast, and we got a great one this week. I have Dana White, which was really a great score. Dana White, some of you uh, may or may not know, is the president of UFC. Dana got involved in buying UFC for $2 million when it was illegal in many states and was hated. And <laughs> it's now worth $4.62 billion with a B, and he's turned it into one of the greatest participant and most powerful sporting events all over the globe. So I really want to talk to Dana, get his backstory on how he was able to create such a hugely successful business model when nobody before him could. So having Dana was a great score, and I got to go over to UFC, talk to Dana in his offices. And, Corey, we're posting a really special video of a tour of the UFC offices later today. Yeah, right? I'm super excited about it. So I got to tour uh, uh, Dana's private offices, his private gym, and there's a lot of stories and things he told us in it. So I'm really excited to post that, and that'll be on our online pages all later this afternoon. So we have Dana White. We have a lot of audience calls. And before we even get going, I just want to take a minute to thank my sponsors, MyPillow, Quicken Loans, BetDSI, the Robinhood app, and True Car. Well, it's President's Day today, and some of us get to take the day off. Some of us don't. <laughs> Sorry, Corey. We actually work on President's Day in our offices here. But oh, And I just flew in from uh, Tampa. I'm making some television out in Tampa the next couple of weeks. So flew in uh, to, for a friend's birthday party, and I'm, I'm flying back Wednesday morning. But the good news is Bar Rescue starts March 3rd. I'm pretty excited about that. And we have a bunch of new episodes. And uh, I'm pretty excited about Nightclub and Bar Convention this year, Corey. Oh, yeah? So, so, you know, a lot of you might know I'm one of the creators of the Nightclub and Bar Convention. We created, I guess, almost 35 years ago. Wow, that's a long time ago. And it became the largest nightclub and bar and beverage show in the world. And I was on the board for 30 years and was president of it for about eight or nine years and actually ran it from our offices here in Las Vegas. And then I left about five years ago. TV got a little too intense and I went off to do other things. And, you know, it's sort of like the movie The Godfather. Every time you leave, they pull you back in. Well, I'm back in now as chairman of Nightclub and Bar. I'm giving the keynote speech and I'm really excited to be back involved. So there's a lot of energy and it's March 25th through 27th in the Las Vegas Convention Center. So if any of you are into the bar business, thought of getting in the bar business, have a product for the bar business, check out the Nightclub and Bar Show. I'll be there. I'll see you there. We'll take some pictures. Check out all the keynote, the speeches about Eddie. 80 educational programs. It's a really cool event. You can get more at nightclub.com. But that's what I'm working really hard on now because the show's only in about five weeks. So there's a whole bunch of work that we're doing on Nightclub and Bar Show. And I'm pretty excited about my Walmart mixers. So I've created a line of cocktail mixers, pina colada, a, a, a strawberry margarita, a light margarita mix, a pina colada mix. And I work with Brian Van Flandern, who's one of the greatest mixologists in the country. And we worked for a long, long time finding the best possible ingredients, importing them from all over the world. And we created what we believe is the greatest line of cocktail mixers in America. I'm really excited about this. We have seven flavors, and they premiere in Walmart in May. So we're in 4,170 Walmart starting in May, and we'll talk about that. But they're really, really good. And I think maybe Corey and May will start sending out samples to everybody. Yeah, I'll get, I want to get my hands on some of those. Oh, we can talk about that. You, <laughs> you have an inside connection, so I'll figure that out for you. But for President's Day, I wanted to talk about the business of being president because some of this stuff blew me away. So preparing for the show over the weekend, I was Googling, you know, what are presidents worth? What were they worth when they came into office versus what were they worth when they left office? What happens when they leave office? How much money do they make over how many years? And then I wanted to look at their approval ratings and see if there's any connection between, you know, whether they made a lot of money or didn't make a lot of money. And, and you know, how does money connect to the presidency? And, boy, it really does. But, for example, you know, there's no connection between how much a president is worth and how great he is. 
uh, as a president as far as ratings are concerned. So you look at one of our greatest presidents of all, probably Abraham Lincoln, right, Corey? Oh, yeah. Everybody loves Lincoln. Lincoln is one of our poorest presidents ever. I mean, uh, uh, he would have probably died broke, and there's a number of other presidents that died broke. So I went back, and I started with Richard Nixon. And I looked at Nixon, President Ford, President Carter, President Reagan, President H.W. Bush, President Clinton, President W. Bush, and Obama. And I looked at all of them, and I was curious to see how much money did they have when they come into office, and how much money did they have now, and how much did they actually increase their income after being president. Oh, okay. So starting with Nixon, Nixon lived for about 30 years after his presidency, and he had $5 million when he started. He had $17 million when he left. So Nixon, over 30 years, grew his worth by 240% after he was president. Ford went from $1.4 million, that's what he had when he became president, to $7 million when he left. He, too, grew his wealth over about 30 years, and he went up 400%. Then the next one was Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, not much at all. Jimmy Carter is only worth about $4.7 million. His income in all these years since he left the White House has only gone up 45%, his worth, I should say. So Carter's worth is up 45%. Nixon's was up 240 Gerald Ford's was up 400%. Then we go to Reagan. Reagan was interesting because Reagan was such a popular president back in his day, right? Took down the wall, you know, generally had very high pulse. Reagan's worth $10.6 million when he became president. He was worth $15.4 million when he passed. And his income also, or worth also over about 30 years, went up about 45%. Okay, not so bad, right? Corridor seems to be a pretty consistent thing. Yeah, pretty pretty consistent. Yeah, nobody's over the top. Then we go to President H.W. Bush. Now, that's the older Bush. H.W. Bush was worth $4 million the day he became president. Uh, uh, When he passed, he was worth approximately $23 million. But this, again, is over 30 years. So George H.W. Bush, he has the big number. He increased his income by 575%. From the time he left the White House to the time he passed. Now, he didn't give a lot of speeches. He didn't do a lot of things. He made most of his money in the oil business in Texas. So after H.W., Clinton. <laughs> oh. This is the one that just completely blew me away. Bill Clinton was worth about $1.2 million when he was uh, elected to the presidency. Uh, uh, since then, just speeches alone. He's earned $153 million. He's Holy. done 729 speeches over 15 years for $153 million. Bill Clinton, from the day he became president to today, his net worth has increased 6,150%. 6,150%. He's now worth somewhere uh, uh, close to uh, 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 $300 million. Wow. And all of that happened after the presidency, which is remarkable. So Clinton is number one with 6,150%. Number two is George H.W. at 575%. Okay, then we go to W., the younger Bush after Clinton. Well, he was actually very conservative. George Jr., he was worth $20 million the day he was elected to be president. He's worth $35 million today. So his net worth has only gone up 75%. He's actually one of the lowest of all. And then we take a look at President Obama. President Obama only left the presidency two years ago, and he's now worth approximately $242 million. And he's done that in only two years. And he has said publicly that he had no money, really, when he became president. So Obama's on track to be the highest uh, uh, um, when he reaches 15 years, like Bill Clinton did, son of a gun, he'd probably be up at 10, 12, 15,000 percent. Wow. So the question really becomes something interesting. And, you know, when, when uh, I find it fascinating when uh, politicians are now talking about, and there's a whole movement, the socialist movement in our country, talking about capping personal income. So if somebody makes, you know, over $100 million a year, you know, 70% of that money should be taxed. And tax the rich, tax the rich, tax the rich. But what about a president? And I'm not being, you know, one way or the other. There's a lot of presidents made a lot of money on this. All, all of them did. What about a president who, who becomes, you know, worth hundreds of millions of dollars on the back of the presidency? How come nobody talks about that? And how much should a president be able to make 
leveraging his knowledge as president and the education that we provided him with and the credibility that we provided him with. It's an interesting thought, and it seems to me that a president shouldn't be able to make a half a billion dollars in a few years after the presidency, that at some point the presidency can't be a money motivation. So when we take a look at the richest presidents in history, this shocks me. Well, number one, of course, is Trump. Trump is worth $3.7 billion when he became president. And, and uh, of course, when you have that much money, you're going to be worth more money when you leave if you don't do anything. Even just interest and income, of course, will increase your income. Number two was interesting. Corey, who do you think would be the second richest president of all time? Ooh, second richest? Um, I want to say Nixon? People would, might think that because Nixon was so corrupt. That right. would, actually, John F. Kennedy is number oh, okay. two. So Trump at $3.7 billion. John F. Kennedy is worth a billion dollars even while he was president. And his father, Joe Kennedy, made an awful lot of that money bootlegging and in, let's say, a, a questionable means over a lot of years. Number three was our nation's founder. In modern terms, if you look at George Washington's worth, George was worth $525 million when he became president. People don't realize how wealthy George Washington was. He was one of our first distillers, a huge farmer, made about 10,000 gallons of bourbon every year as a distiller. Number three, no surprise, Thomas Jefferson was, I'm sorry, four, was our fourth wealthiest president in the 212 million, Theodore Roosevelt, 125 million, Andrew Jackson, 119 million, James Madison, 101 million. Lyndon B. Johnson, $98 million. So when we take a look at our presidents, you know, uh, Kennedy is regarded as one of our finest presidents, right? He was worth a billion dollars. So certainly his wealth uh, didn't have a negative impact upon his performance as president. Then we look at presidents like George Washington, who was worth $525 million. Corey, back then, nobody was worth yeah, no $525 So he's one of the wealthiest men in the world, if not the country. It didn't affect his ability to be president either. And then when you look at great presidents like Lincoln, the fact that they died almost broke didn't affect his ability to be president either. So I worked really hard on this all weekend long, and I wanted to prove to you guys that there was some relationship between the business ability and the financial abilities of a president and their job approval ratings. And the fact is I couldn't find it. So to suggest that a businessman will be a better president can't really prove that out, Corey. There's nothing here to substantiate that, and I worked all weekend on this, to suggest that a president who's broke is incapable of running the country because you've got to be a business CEO and you got to run. That also is complete bull, that there's no connection to not having money to being a good president or having money and being a good president. There is no connection at all. Well, then I started going even crazier being the nutcase that I am, Corey, and I said to myself, okay. What about a president approval ratings? You know, we all talk about, oh, Trump's approval rating is uh, 44% and Obama's was 75% and Clinton's was. We talk about these numbers, but what does it mean to us relatively? This is some good research here, John. Thank you, buddy. I did my homework this yeah, weekend. Yeah, I can tell. So when I was taking a look at, you know, who were the highest historical job approval statistics in history? Now, this isn't opinion stuff. This is right out of Gallup. And I thought you would find it interesting to know that really out of the top 14 approval ratings in all of history, according to Gallup organization, only six have been over 50%. Wow. As overall averages. My point is this. You know, presidents are, are evaluated and we're all evaluated not only based upon who we are, but based upon where we are in a life cycle. You know, if you surround yourself by idiots, you're the smartest guy in the room, aren't you? Right? Everybody tells you how wonderful your life is good and you have this illusion that my popularity polls are the highest. Everybody thinks I'm a genius. They love working for me, etc. Yeah. If you don't enforce rules, you can be very popular, can't you, Corey? Right, come and go when you want, blah, blah, blah. I could be the most popular boss in the world. Right, yeah. But the fact of the matter is ratings and what people think of us has so much to do with how we re react in the moment. And how we react in a moment is reaction management, which is the term that I own and I've written about so much for all of these years. So presidential popularity polls are nothing but how do we react to this president at this moment in time? After a State of the Union speech, President Trump had a nice little pop. Did well. Other times he'll drop. Other times President Obama went up. President Obama went down. The point is this. We are what we do. 
we are where we are. So we are who we and where we are. So the fact of the matter is, how do you get your approval ratings up? Well, you can't always raise them by being too nice, too soft, too lenient. Those are the things that raise popularity numbers, but they can take a big hit on your wallet. How do you be tough but also be liked? How do you be action-oriented? I'm going to make stuff happen, but I'm still going to be liked. I don't want to be hated. When I'm hated, things don't get done. How do you blend being tough and being liked? How do you blend causing people to be accountable, calling them out, making them deliver what they say they would with being liked? So many struggle with this term in management. You know, there's a fine line between the word aggressive and the word ass. And that line, Corey, might be very different to you than it is me, right? Right. You might think somebody's an ass that I think is just aggressive or vice versa. Yeah. So how do we blend those things? And there's only one way you can do that, and that's respect. You see, if you earn respect, then when you're being forceful, you're being forceful from a position of respect and people accept it because they accept your respect. They accept your leadership. They expect your control over them because it's all based in respect. So if you have management and control over someone and that management and control was given to you by them out of respect... Boy, that's powerful. If you respect me, Corey, if that's the reason why you work for me, you'll do almost anything for me. Yeah. If you listen to me just because I force you to, uh, that's probably a temporary job, <laughs> isn't it? That's not going to last so yeah, long. Yeah, probably not. So the fact of the matter is we build success when we build respect. We build the ability to be a leader when we build respect. Some presidents, President Carter is a good example, was a very respected man whose presidency did not work, right? Interest rates, gas crises. I mean, a lot of things worked against him, the Iranian hostage crisis. A lot of things worked against him, but yet he was respected, and he's retired as president uh, 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 with respect, but yet he was not a good president, and everybody knows that. So respect is different from performance, isn't it? If you're respected, you can make a mistake. Oh, no, but he really knows what he's doing. That was just a misjudgment. If you're not respected, that mistake makes you an idiot, doesn't it? It does. So when I look at all of this and I say who, which presidents were the richest and the poorest and how does that relate to approval ratings? And then when I look at history and where they were at different moments and I'm trying to put all this together to come up with some answer for all of you, I couldn't come up with it except for this. President's movement in popularity is so vast from the high to the low points, if you tie it back to moments in history, life comes down to this. How do you seize that moment? If it's a moment of great height and jubilation, how do you add to that height and that jubilation? How do you become relevant in a moment of high energy, excitement, and jubilation? Conversely, how do you become relevant, impactful, in the worst moments, the most horrific moments in your life? If you can manage those high points and those low points, then the fact of the matter is you'll have a high approval rating throughout your own life. And Richard Nixon once said something that was really powerful, and I'm going to close the segment with this quote. And it's a powerful quote because this is a guy who was on top of the world and on the bottom of the world, was loved and was incredibly hated. And he once said that you cannot appreciate the highest mountaintops until you've been in the lowest valleys. It's really a powerful lesson. So it's what we learn in those low valleys that give us the tools to get to the mountaintop. And if there's anything I've learned, the most important tool of all is respect. Watch Bar Rescue. I can scream at them, can I, Corey? Oh, yeah. I can challenge them as husbands, fathers, businessmen, brothers, sisters. I challenge them hard and I go at them. If they didn't respect me, I couldn't get away with any of that. So I want to ask you a question. Do they respect you? I'll be right back. Don't shut down this podcast yet. No Excuses with John Taffer continues next. Want to talk to John? 
Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Every car comes with its share of stories. How about that ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up your first date? Or the luxury package you got after a big promotion? Or how about the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer long? While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth is when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how you your car's details pop up. Then just answer a few questions like navigation, moonroof, and watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already know it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. And once you're finished, you can get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all areas. If you're a bar owner, want to become a bar owner, if you're an operator or a mixologist, you can't afford not to attend a nightclub and bar show. All the new products will be there, thousands of new promotions, the best operators in the world, about 80 educational programs. It's the biggest opportunity of the year to boost your sales or to get into the bar business. And by the way, I'm doing the keynote and opening the show. If you want to go to the Nightclub and Bar Show, check out ncbshow.com. That's ncbshow.com. If you want to be in a bar business or be successful in a bar business, you'll be at the Nightclub and Bar Show. Taffer is back. This is No Excuses with John Taffer. Well, this is a lot of fun for me. We both love Las Vegas. We both dominated Spike TV together for a number of years. So we have a lot in common. So it's a pleasure to have Dana White with me here this week. And, And those of you who don't know, Dana's president of UFC. I want to go back a lot of years. Okay. So when you grew up, when you were really young, what was your dream in life? What did you want to be? You know, what's crazy is that uh, I've been lucky in life with a lot of things. But the, 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 the thing that I would say is the most is this is what I've always wanted to do. So you I've, always want to be in a fight game of some way. 100% my whole life. And I, I think I say this all the time. You know, the, the toughest thing in life is figuring out what you want to do. What, what are you here for? What were you meant yeah. to do? What, 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 what is your purpose in life? And I think that, you know, when you're real young, everybody tells you that if you don't go to college, you're never going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. And um, if you go to any college anywhere in the world and you ask kids, what, you know, what, what's your major? Well, I'm majoring in political science, but I'm thinking about switching over to, they're at college because they were told they had to go to college. English literature. Yes. Any of that (laughs) stuff. History. Philosophical. But they don't know what they want to do. They're they're not following whatever they're passionate about. You know how many people told me when I told them back in the day, you know, I'm sure you heard the story. If you haven't, I was a bellman in a hotel. Yes. I was 18, 19 years old. And a doorman. Yeah. And... Made good money, great money, especially yeah. for that age. I'm 18, 19 years old, and uh, you got full health benefits, 401K, uh, all the things that you think you want out of life. But yeah. I was like, this isn't me. This isn't what I want to do. I want to be in the fight business. And yeah. people are like, that's ridiculous. That's so stupid. So when you said you wanted to be in the fight business, did you envision yourself as a fighter, as a manager, as a promoter? I, I think that you know, when you're young like I was, of course, you, you, you want to be a fighter. Some people have it and some people don't. I obviously didn't have it or, you know, you'd have heard of me then. But, uh, you know, but I, I just wanted to be in the fight game. And that was my goal. And when you know exactly what you want to do, you basically wake up every day and you work toward that goal. You know, I've never seen a sport that requires more discipline. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I've never told the story. Years ago, I used to run Grossinger's in the Catskill Mountains, which was a a big 1,200-acre resort. And we had a boxing ring, and we would host the world champion. And they would come. So when I ran a hotel, Michael Spinks trained there, Kenny Norton trained there. And they would come, and they would stay in a hotel for 18 weeks. And they'd work out for 18 weeks. And every afternoon at 2.30, they would spar for the hotel guests. And I was, you know, a young executive running a hotel. I have never seen discipline to diet, training, regimen. And I've seen NFL athletes train. I've seen all others. So when you commit to fighting and want to be a fighter, then you must be incredibly disciplined. Yeah. Not only that, they're, they're built different than any other human beings yeah. on earth. Um, so do you consider yourself a disciplined guy? 
Um, yeah, I, I would say that I am, uh, especially, especially with the business and with, yeah. and with the game, you know, I have a, I have a routine that I do every day. And one of the things that I've learned in my life now is everything in life is about consistency. It's about sure being is. consistent. Yeah. Um, you know, you get up every day and you consistently do what it takes to build your business and to, uh, you know, for me, grow the sport. Yeah. So, so you started young. And from the hotel, yep. how did you get into the fighting game? So you always thought of yourself as going there. So to you, the hotel job was temporary. Right. Well, it's no different than, than, uh, than college. If you, if you yeah. do go to college and, and you know what you want to do, you, you figure out what classes you have to take and what you have to yep. do, and what's, what's my path to get here. So there was this, this street fighting legend, and he was a boxer too in, 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 uh, in Boston, and his name was Peter Welsh. So I said, I'm going to find, I never met him, didn't know him, um, heard tons of stories about him. So I literally quit this job, right? I quit my job, walked out of work that day and quit. And I started looking for this guy. Wow. And I was looking for him for about two weeks. For what purpose? For him to manage you? For him? So I, I, I went up to this guy and I said, I know you don't know me from a hole in the wall, but you know, my name's Dana White. And I want to learn everything about the fight business. And I want to, I, I want to learn from you. I, w- I want to work for you, uh, work under you, whatever you need me to do. And I want to learn. And, and as crazy as that sounds, going to this guy, he said yes. Wow. Took me in. And, uh, and that was it. From that day on, it went just like this. Straight up. So A, courage to ask. Yep. B, uh, uh, I'm guessing you would have done it for free. You would have done it for anything. I did it for point. free for a long time. Yeah, wow. I did it for free for a long time. And, you know, you, you have to figure it's, 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 But it's no different than being a college student, yeah. right? You, why, when why you're in college, you have to figure out how to pay for school. You're living your costs. What am I going to do? What classes am I going to take? I looked at it the same way. I, you know, I looked at it as, as, as my college so you were very strategic, even, yes, even as a young exactly, guy. Exactly, yeah. I was, so, it was. so you go up to him. You're a young punk. Yep. You go up to this legend. Yep. And you ask him to take you under his wings. Why did he do it? What do you think he saw in you? I don't know. I, was I it don't, tough? I don't, was it commitment? Well, the, the thing was is that, uh, you know, when, when I was with him, if you, if you asked him today, you know, I worked hard with him. Worked hard and, and uh, you know, we, we, we did a lot of different things together. And then I ended up coming out here to Vegas, basically with the knowledge that, that Peter Welsh had given me. So now you, you, now you got not only your discipline, not only yeah. your passion, now you got some knowledge. Well, the, so now you come to Vegas. Well, the other thing I used to do is I, I also used to go um, either to libraries or bookstores. And I would read all about marketing, sports marketing, um, you know, PR. I would read all these different business, all these different things um, that, that I would read. And, you know, uh, don't you wish other athletes would read those things? Yes, I do. You know, every athlete's a brand builder. I literally just walked out of a meeting when I came in here. That's why I was a couple yeah. minutes late for you. I, I, I walked out of a meeting where we're, we're talking about these fighters that we have under contract. Yeah. And everybody, all these fighters have managers, right? And the fighter themselves do not get involved in the business. That's crazy. The, they, they sometimes will offer guys fights and the manager will turn the fight down and the fighter didn't even know that, the opportunity that we, came. That, exactly that we offered this fight to them. Yeah. How you could let somebody else have that much control and decision-making over your life is batshit nuts. But yet every one of us is in a marketing business somehow. Right. Even, even if you're sweeping streets, you have to market yourself to your supervisor to get ahead. 100%. So, so to think that these fighters would have the discipline you do but never focus on building their brand. It's crazy. And when their brand is powerful and they have a big audience and a big following, you're much more inclined to talk with them, negotiate with them. They're an asset. They make more money. 100%. And think about when they retire. So when you retire from fighting, your goal during fighting should be to do as many great things as you possibly can in front of as many people as you possibly can. So build a brand. Exactly. So the world knows who you are when you retire. Uh, look at Shaq, for yep. example, all the commercials that Shaq is doing on Unbelievable. TV Unbelievable. So and actually, Shaq is with a guy. His, his, his guy is Perry Rogers, who went to high school with Lorenzo and I. Ah. And, uh, 
you know, he's brilliant. And look at what him and Shaq have done together. Plus, there's so much stuff that you don't even know about Shaq that he's invested in. Restaurants that he owns that you wouldn't even know. It's incredible. And he's built a brand. 100%. long past him holding a basketball. But he's also one 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 of the rare standouts that has an incredible personality. He's funny. He's yeah. lovable. Yeah. You don't like Shaq. You love, love Shaq. Shaq. He's absolutely. just, you know. Nobody he's, doesn't. He's, he's got th- that gift. Yeah. Have you ever thought about doing a marketing class for your fighters? How to you brand know, yourself? How we to have, market yourself? We have, yeah. So Do we, they come? Yeah, yeah. The fighters came. You know, we, we cover everything from paying your taxes to yeah. uh, um, social media and all that stuff. And, so you, and you protect them in a sense. We, we do the best we can. You know, yeah. what you can't do is you can't get out there and actually, you know, try to help these guys control their money. Because you can never to- tell a grown man or woman what to do with their own money. Right. And one of the problems with being young, famous, and successful is you think that it's never going to end. Mm-hmm. This money's just going to keep running in because mm-hmm. I- I'm never going to not be great. I'm always yep. going to be great because yep. you believe in yourself. And then the day comes when, you know, up. Father Time comes knocking at your door and it's over. Yeah. And you're like, wow, I-, I-, I wish I didn't blow all that money. You had a vision for mixed martial arts that few people had. So when you came here and got involved in UFC or MMA, mixed martial arts, did you have this vision that it would get to this point? Because you've changed the sport a lot over the years in rules and the way you've put it together. Was this your vision or did it evolve? If you look at interviews with me, you know, 15 years ago, I was saying that this is going to be the biggest sport in the world and that this thing would be global. And I I always had this philosophy that I truly believed in. And thank God the Fertitta brothers believed in it too. Um, I don't care what color you are, what country you come from, or what language you speak. We're all human beings. Fighting's in our DNA. We get it and we like it. Fighting doesn't have to be explained. I've laid in bed, you know, in England at night watching cricket. Can't figure it out. I'm never <laughs> going to figure out cricket, okay? And cricket's never going to be big in the United States. We don't grow up playing it. We don't understand the rules. Um, but fighting? We fighting, it. exactly. It can we be in any language. It can be anything. We get it. We've, growing up in school, we saw fights in school. We saw fights here. And, and if you think about the most famous athletes or human beings to ever walk the face of the earth, They've always been fighters, they you know? Ali, you, of course. Look at Ali, right. known globally, Holyfield. right? Holyfield, right. Tyson, right? right? Uh, Manny Boy. Pacquiao, this little guy from the Philippines. The world knows yeah. Manny Pacquiao. Bruce Lee. Oh, Kids still know who Bruce Lee is today. today. He died in the early 70s. Yep. We are fascinated by who the toughest people in the world are. So let me take it a step further. So aren't we fascinated by the whole premise of conquest? Yes, we are. Conquest. We are. So the moment in hockey where there's that check, wham, right, that's that conquest. It's true. So that conflict of humanity. Well, even in hockey, fights. Fights are the most favorite. Uh, and the biggest tackle. What people like and the of most. Of course. The biggest hits. So, so you know, in my, in my show, Bar Rescue, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's the same thing. It's the struggle of the mental conquest. Right. right? Who's going to win between us? So do you bring your competitiveness to the negotiating table? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. I, 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 uh, it's funny because as successful as this company is, as big as the UFC is today, we battle every day that we go to war every day that I walk into this building. We're in a, we're in a huge war right now with direct TV. Yeah. I, I just, we go to war every day. It's crazy. And the bigger you become and uh, you know, the more successful you become, the more you have to fight. Yeah, it's it's not easier. It's almost tougher. One hundred percent. There's more people against you. So I just said that in the other room too. I said I just when we were just in this meeting. I said it's crazy the 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 amount of people that come at you on a daily basis yeah. in this business. Well, the bigger you are, the bigger of a magnet you are Insane. to draw that kind of stuff. It's True. crazy. So so when when you t- took over and really got involved in this, it was illegal in many states. It was right. determined barbaric. But yet, you know, it had this power, particularly, and I'm a bar operator, so I have bars around the country. Right. I mean, the, the power so of UFC and bar. So I saw the potential as a bar operator early on before people even quite knew what it was, but they were mesmerized by what they saw on right. the screen. So you had to take this barbaric, confusing, illegal sport 
and make it pristine, right? Make it stand right. alone. How did you go about that challenge? Because that was big, and you knew you had a hurdle to climb. Right. Yeah. Well, think about this. This wasn't allowed on pay-per-view. Yeah. Wasn't allowed. You as a grown adult man. Couldn't watch it. Didn't have the option to buy it on pay-per-view. Porn. I can buy. It's on pay-per-view, but UFC was not. Yep. And our, our goal was to get onto free television. So, um, you know, what we did was we repackaged. First of all, you have to look at the marketing of the old owners. So they marketed it as, this, as the most brutal, violent sport in the world. Right. Two men enter the cage, one man leaves yep. with, with the assumption that somebody was going to die, yep. you know, on, on this thing. First of all, you, you just, embraced just the, real rather than right. Well, first of all. There's never been a death or serious injury in the history of the UFC. Important point. Cheerleading can't say that. Okay, so let's 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 be honest. High here. school football can't say that, right? High school football, exactly. So we we ran toward regulation. You know, wanted all the athletic commissions to sanction us because this is a real sport, yep. and these are real athletes who are like you said absolutely disciplined and train hard in all these different forms of martial arts and, mm-hmm. and their cardiovascular and weight training, et cetera, yep. et cetera. Um, the other thing that I loved about this sport when I first got into it is the storylines between these guys. Yeah. First of all, yeah, I had Matt Hughes, this country boy, you know, who really owned a farm and, and really did ride tractors and things like that. Um, and, he, and, and he came from wrestling. Then I had Chuck Liddell, th- this dude with the mohawk and the Fu Manchu thing. <laughs> he looked like, if you looked up <laughs> Ultimate Fighter in the dictionary, Chuck Liddell His was there. Right. Then we ended up with George St. Pierre, th- this martial arts French guy who was attractive. And, yep. and, and you couldn't like the stories in boxing. I came from the mean streets of such and such, and if it wasn't for boxing, I'd be dead or in jail. Yeah. That was literally everybody's story. story. And most of the guys you meet are bad guys. They're like, they're scary dudes, right? But, oh, but these guys are great guys. They all have different personalities. And, and, and uh, I was like, man, this, this can be big. So, so you went at it state by state. Yep. Getting, getting it legal. Right. Went at programming, put the rules in place to standardize it. And then you as a marketer, and boy, you're a good freaking marketer, buddy. Thank you. So then you turned around and said, okay, how do I re-image this? Yep. And I'm guessing that's the thought that you went through your mind. Right. Talk about that for a minute. And the other thing, not, not only um, creating a new image for this thing. First of all, when you go, the first part was venues didn't want us. Like venues around the country didn't want, they were afraid of it. Right. You know what I mean? And then you have to think fans, people who, who you know, to get a regular guy to show up at that thing, they're probably like, oh my God, uh, things got to be scary. Imagine the people right. that, that show up to watch this I'm stuff. I'm almost a bad guy if I go. Right, exactly. Yeah. Whereas, have you ever been to a Red Sox Yankee game? There's little kids there with their gloves and there's. Yep. I, 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 I saw, I was at a game one time and, uh, these girls were walking by and, and they had Yankees jackets on. You Yankee whores. And they're <laughs> yelling all this crazy stuff. Well, at, particularly at these, in Boston and New these York. Women because they're fans of New York and go to an NFL game. You same know what thing, I mean? Same, it's people, ugly. People ugly. are hammered fights everywhere. It's yep. crazy. The UFC is the exact opposite. You know, there's rarely ever fights in the crowd at the UFC. That stuff doesn't happen. So we just had to get out there and, and uh, rebuild the image. Get you the know? facts known. And, you know, it, it's about when celebrities show up at your event, too. It makes it look, you know, like, oh, wow. If it's good enough for them, it's good, good enough, enough for, for me, me type thing. And that yeah. is 100% the American, you know, attitude. Yeah. So, so you embrace the word real. Right? Yeah. That yes. And, and that's the other thing, you know, wh- wh- where do we fall? You got the WWE over here and you got boxing over here, right? Well, first of all, we're more exciting than boxing. Absolutely. You can punch, kick, knee, elbow, go to the ground. You can pull off submissions. You can do all these other yep. things. And we're real. Unlike the WWE, right, this right. is a hundred percent real. Yep. So we're, 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 we're like a mix of both. But a lot more fun and a you lot sort more of exciting. The best of both sides. So true. Yeah. Exactly. We have the best yeah. of both worlds. Yeah. And like I told you earlier, the athletes are incredible to market. They're yeah. they're so much easier to market. And the other thing, and this just happened, um, the mixed martial arts fans don't care about losses because we always have the best fighting the best. You're absolutely going to lose, right? It happens. But when you do get those rare people 
like Habib Nurmagomedov and John Jones and some of these other guys that go undefeated, yeah. you realize how truly great, great they, are. they really are. Yeah, exactly. That makes perfect sense because of the distance they have to go to get there. Absolutely. You have to beat the best from the minute you walk in the door until you retire. Yeah. So you're all about authenticity. Yes. And keeping it real. I am in my show, too. I have no actors, no scripts, no cast. Yep. So unlike and, wrestling. With and a- that's exactly what we did with The Ultimate Fighter. Nothing on The Ultimate Fighter is staged. Nothing is fake. Everything is 100% real. And that's why that show lasted as long as it has. But you see, that's contrary to television, and you know that. So true. Because producers say to us, oh, we want to know what we're getting. We want to know how it ends. But guys like you and I are resistant to that. We want to keep it real. So we're often in conflict with the production teams at the networks for that reason. So Polygian, who is my partner in The Ultimate Fighter, has been since day one. We started in the beginning, and what would happen is we'd shoot something, and then the producer would say, we need to do that again. <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, fuck that. You missed right. it. Me you too. lost it. Me too. We're not doing it again because I'm not an actor, and yeah. that, that's not what we're going to do. So, so You're like me. They, I've shut my show down four times when they asked me to do something. Well, they, they immediately <laughs> conformed and said, all right, then this is how we got to do it. You know? that's and how if you we miss something great, then we miss something great. Well, that's how you protect your 100%. brand. 100%. And that is your brand. Yep. And other people don't get that. So when you look at your fighters, you're not creating their personalities. You're not writing their stories. You're not creating any of that. It's right. real when they come it's in. It's true. Listen, the most contrived part of the ultimate fighter is when the guys walk in and I say, so this is how this is going to work. Because you have to lay out the, you know, and then as soon yeah. as I lay out what the show is, and ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the ultimate fighter. Yeah. Game on. Whatever happens, happens. happens. It's all real. Yeah, so... You've taken this incredibly real environment, unlike wrestling, and you've created a couple of mandates that I thought were really cool. One, you have a mandate that your fighters must meet with fans before and after fights. Right. So you cause fan contact. Right. You know, baseball used to do that years ago. Right. Right? You'd meet the players and you'd get your signatures. That was, how did the... Fighters react to that. Are they resistant to that sometimes? I'm guessing they are in some you, cases. Well, you have some guys or, or girls that are, that are resistant um, because it's just not their person. They don't have yeah. the personality to do that. But for the most part, our, our guys are pretty pretty incredible with the fans. You know, every time we do an event, we have a fan village. You know, where there's fighters and everything else. Yeah. Whenever we do an event, we we have what's called guest fighters. You know, we fly five or six of our big stars out there to do that to interact with the fans. And uh, yeah, I, I've I've never understood this thing in Hollywood. Yeah, like you see these these big celebrities and they're hiding from their fans and yeah, sneaking so. in, you know, back doors and doing all this stuff. Without the fans, what do you got? Exactly. You right. know, you you've got nothing without the fans. When you show up, and these people. Some of them flew there, so they had to buy plane tickets, hotel rooms, eat in restaurants, and all, and, and buy tickets. Why would you not want to talk to these people? Yeah. How does that even make sense? Well, I I gain so much from talking to them. Yeah, that it too. It inspires me. It energizes me. It keeps me going. Yep. It gives them more to fight for, really. Well, the thing is, to social media in the beginning, when social media first started, Twitter, it was such a good uh, indicator. From, but when I would look the night of a fight – be like there'd be a guy on there uh oh my my cables out in uh you know illinois the cable system went down then i'd hit the guy and go what cable system are you with in illinois and we could do it i got guys like we have an obstructed view up here we paid this much for the <laughs> tickets what seats are you in we move them into different seats it used to be incredible now it's loaded with just idiots and 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 fake accounts and people right. that are just you know it's 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 not the gauge that it was to 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 really see what was going on with your fan base and the business like it was 10 years ago yeah unfortunately it doesn't have the real yeah, it's just it's there's there's just so much crap that you have to sift through to get to the real stuff and find out, you know, what's out there, but um, you know, I still have a whole social media team that's set up the night of the fight mm-hmm. and they're monitoring everything that's going on and and we can use it to if those things do happen, people are in some bad seats or whatever. It just it, it helps you make the fan uh, experience that much better. Whereas back in the old days, we wouldn't know till Monday when we started getting letters or stuff that had happened to people during the event. Um, but yeah, it's pretty cool. It's interesting. So you're almost like a hospitality guy. Here we are in Vegas. Oh, one hundred percent. So you care about the opinion of every fan. 
one hundred percent. So you watch um, your social media feed well, yourself. And- there's there's some that you can tell this guy's an asshole. Right. Okay, this guy's an asshole, yep. and no matter what what, what we happy. do, this nice guy. I would actually rather that guy go away, <laughs> but beat it. Go 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 watch something else. <laughs> Get out of here. You know, there's those type of guys, but then there's yeah. I absolutely care what the fans are thinking and what they have to do. The fans for this sport have been incredible to us, man. I mean, die hard, hardcore. Good people. So, so when you take a look at, at, at uh, uh, your family and what you've accomplished here, how do you balance the work? Because you're a hardworking guy. You live yeah. this. Yeah. How do you create that balance? So you here every day, 12 hours? Yeah. What time are you in the office? Yeah, I, I get and in. By the way, I didn't say this to anybody. We're sitting here, by the way, in the UFC corporate offices right. in Las Vegas. So I'm sitting here in the conference room next to Dana's office in an amazing building here, Thank by you. the way. A beautiful building in Las Vegas. What time in the morning are you here every day? I get here around 8 o'clock in the morning, and, and it depends on the day, on what, what's going on. But we usually get out of here around 7 or 8. So you're putting in 11, 11 yeah. hour days. Yeah. So typically your car might be the last one here in the parking lot? Yeah, the, the, the executives are definitely the last guys here. Yeah. The, well, people- the, the, the crew that works on the fights, you know, I got the two matchmakers and our head of legal, and me, the three of us, uh, the four of us work on the fights. And, uh, you know, sometimes we're here Saturday, we're here Sunday. We're here on holidays. Uh, well, it was just what, what holiday just went past? Martin Luther King. Yep. Was that the last one? We were here all day that day. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so it's wh- funny. So, so if you walk around this building, right? There's, uh, it's beautiful. This place is incredible. A there's a restaurant downstairs yeah. for for the employees. The artwork and the on the walls. The design. It's a beautiful property. There's a state-of-the-art gym facility for all the fighters to fight in for free. My office is ridiculous. Ridiculous. Right. Right across the hall from us, and I'll show you when we're done here, mm-hmm. there's one room. It's the ugliest room in the building. It's all white walls, and we literally write on the walls in there. It is the most important room in the entire building. That ugly, tiny little box is what keeps this whole place running. It's the matchmaking room. Yeah, so, or the bo- oh, wow. So that's where all of the strategy. Everything is done uh, in that room. The, everything that runs this business and creates revenue comes out of that, that room, room across the hall. Well, you know, years ago in my corporate consulting work, Disney used to have a term called charat. Yeah. Where they would lock people in a room like that, pillows on the floor, you know, mattresses yep. on the floor, and, and huge post-it note sheets on the wall everywhere. Yep. And, and you would sit in that room and you would ideate. Yeah. And you'd ideate for hours and what this stems into and that stems into and this. So that huge process was the core of everything that is created in a, in a creative kind of business. It's true. And what's incredible is when you get – to the level that we're at now where you can hire really smart, talented yeah. people. Like we have guys that, that are handling uh, the production. We have guys that are handling this, handling that. It lets me sit in that, in that tiny little room longer. Yeah. So, so it's, it's awesome. So I want to say a, a phrase. Tell me how that feels when I say it. Dana White, corporate guy. <laughs> furthest thing from it. Isn't that yeah. amazing, though? Yeah. But yet you're running a huge corporation, but you're doing it in a very non-corporate way. Right. We're, we're so non-corporate, it's, it's not even funny. It's like, you know, when I think of corporate, you think of your job. Most of you people that are listening right now probably live this life that I'm going to say right now. You're 10 minutes late to work. You're in trouble. Yeah. Right? So somebody's on your ass. The boss. From the minute you get to work, you go to lunch. You're 15 minutes late back from lunch. Yeah. No, you can't leave early. No, you can't do this. There's none of that in this business. I don't give a shit what you're doing today. I don't care what time you got here. I don't care how long your lunch is. As long as you get your work done, there's no reason for me to be looking over your shoulder and be up your ass unless you're not getting your work done. And believe me, this is the type of business that if you're not pulling your weight and getting your work done, you'll know it. we know it immediately. So it's very much like Google's approach as well, where they don't track hours, you know, and in essence, they track your output. So as long as you have a, a, a team member who's contributing, that's right. Then you'll let them contribute in their own style, leading up to the fight. So the the cra- here's but here's so the crazy. If I thing. work for you, can I come here at nine o'clock at night and work till three in the morning? One hundred percent. So I have access to the building. You have I access. come in. I can yes. work anytime I want. Yep. Have my team meetings and yep. do all that. And I guess you encourage that. You can do whatever you want, whatever time you want. Yep. You know what I mean? That's Lene, my head of PR over there. I have no idea what time she got here. I don't even know when she's leaving. She might be going on vacation tomorrow for all I know. I don't give a shit. The job's done. She's a beast. She does what she needs to do and she gets her job done. And and we don't look over. This is the 
least corporate place in the world. One of the things that happens here, and you know, when you look at the business that we were when we first started, yeah. I was going after the biggest and the brightest and the most talented people in the in, in, in the world, yeah. not just the country, because we yeah. were going global and going into all these. So I'm looking for the absolute best. Nobody that lived in L.A. or New York wanted to move to Las Vegas to come work at the UFC. I've had people laugh at me when I offered them jobs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the one thing that always happens when somebody leaves – I'm always so proud that somebody left here and went to Nike. Right. Somebody left here and went to some other big job somewhere. You know, those three letters mean something now when it's on a resume and they go somewhere. Sure does. But the one thing that always happens, it hasn't not, not happened once yet. When people leave, they end up telling me, I, I screwed up. Wow. I made a big mistake. I should have never left the UFC. Wow. I had the best job in the world. It was perfect. I hate this job I'm in now. Well, think about what's going on here. It's growth. It's exciting. There's right. new people coming in and out. You have marketing. You have promotions. You have cities. You have events. You have partnerships, sponsorship. Yep. So, there's so much excitement in this so building. True. So true. I imagine you jump on a train, and it's moving really fast. So when you jump on board, you better move with it. Right. And the beautiful thing is that the people who come here and work here are just as passionate about this thing as I am. You know, they, they love it. They live it. They breathe it. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, it is. You know, it's funny. When I read about you, I read tough guy. Yeah. Southy tough guy. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm that, sitting here with you. We're talking, looking yeah. in each other's eyes. You're a sweetheart, aren't yeah, you? That, 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 you know, a lot of, a lot of myths uh, yeah. come, come up. And listen, I, I'm definitely not the guy I was when I was 20. You know what I mean? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not the guy I was when we started building this business. Yeah. It was a completely, you know, I was younger. You're more political. I, I was way more aggressive, yeah. um, you know. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm a different person than I was. What's 20 the biggest years ago? lesson you've learned since you stepped into this building, this new building, which it was really a different whole level for your UFC experience? What's your biggest lesson? You know how I was telling you earlier about everything in life is about consistency and being yeah. consistent. The other the other thing about me is I I like routine. A lot of people don't like. I I get up. Every morning at the same, same time, time, you know, I'll take my daughter to school. I come in here and work out in the gym. I shower. I get ready. I do my day. And then I go home. Same routine every day. And when I get out of my routine, I, I don't like it a lot. Gotcha. But, you, but you have to because you travel. Sure. So I also have a routine when I travel of what I do and, and everything else. So everything Not so easy routine. to have any routine when you travel. It's true. Yeah. So then when we moved out of our old building, kind of threw me off my, my routine. And it was a little different. So I had to adapt and adjust to the new building, building a new routine, and, and getting my, my shit together, if you would, o over here at this building. Um, so th that, that was one of the things that I've learned since we've been here. But other than that, I mean, we, we just bought this place. How many square feet is this place? Do you, do you know off the top? Yeah, but we just, we just bought the building next door, too. It's 160,000 square feet. And we're renovating the whole place right now. So you've already outgrown this space. Yeah, we're, we're, we're looking at just – we bought five acres over here, too. We're just growing and growing and growing. I, I'm working on some stuff right now. People are impressed with what we've done in the last, you know, 18 years. Wait till you see what we do in the next five. Wow. Yeah. Well, by the look on your face, I guess it's uh, pretty spectacular. We're going to do incredible things. And so uh, everybody here – you know, like you were asking earlier about my people, everybody here is on board with the vision and is so excited about, the, you know, what's yeah. next for us. What are you really good at? If you were to pick one thing, what do you think you're really good at? I would say marketing and branding and understanding, but what would you Thank say you. you're really good at? Uh, what am I really good at? Um, I would say that I'm, the key to this business and, and, and what really keeps this business driving is I'm, I'm really good at finding who's next. Mm. You know, if you, if you look at, at the track record here, we had, um, you know, everybody saying, what are you going to do when Chuck Liddell leaves? Right. What are you going to do when Matt Hughes is gone? Right. What are you going to do when uh, Anderson Silva? What are you going to do when George St. Pierre? Ronda Rousey. That, but Dave, the list goes on and on. Isn't that the case in every business? Yeah. So you, if I'm an accounting firm and I lose one of my main guys... I better have a nose for talent. Yep. And if I own a car dealer and I lose my best salesman, I better have a nose for talent. 100%. So what you're talking about is you have a nose for talent. Right. But I'm guessing that isn't only with fighters. I'm guessing that's with the people around you as well. Well, I, yeah. We, 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 we've, we 
put together a pretty good group of talented people here at at UFC, too. Yeah. And if there was something, and and I hope you don't think this is an unfair question, if there was something that you said I'm not good at, that I'd love to be better at as a businessman, what would it be? Well, you you know what? There's there's a lot of things that I'm not good at as a businessman, but I've hired people who are. (laughs) So, So... are you a man who knows your strengths and one hundred percent? Yeah, I'm. I'm not this this arrogant dude that runs around mm-hmm. this building trying to stick my nose in everybody else's stuff. Right, I know you're not arrogant. I, at I all. have my strengths and I have my weaknesses. I know exactly what they are, and I focus on on just my strengths. And uh, I've hired really smart people to 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 back up all my weaknesses. So you know when to rely on yourself, one hundred percent, and when to rely on someone yeah, else. Yeah, well, it's it's the same thing. When Ari came in and bought this company, right? And, you know, the, the thing was I had to stay and, you know, he, he's in debt now $4.025 billion. Right. And there's a lot of people in those type of situations that how do you overcome that? How do you overcome 4 billion in debt? Um, is this thing going to continue to work? Can you, can you pull off what you need to pull off with the fire and everything? A little bit of pressure. I, 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 I looked at Ari and said, dude, I'll bet on me and you every day, all day. And uh, we sat down. We put together a game plan on what the future was going to be for this company. We're both aligned 100%. One of the big things in any business, I don't care if you're a rock group, uh, you know, you're, you're a company, whatever it might be, ego Ego will destroy everything. Absolutely. If you look at the relationship between me and the Fertitas, right? First of all, when we buy this thing, we buy it for $2 million. We end up going like $40 million in the hole. 40 and change, right? Never once did anybody start pointing the fingers and, wow. and doing all this stuff to each other, right? We stuck together. We worked through it. And then, dug out. Then the thing goes, psh, takes off like a rocket ship, right? Now... <clears throat> It's super successful. Everybody's making money. I'm the front guy. I get all the, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly all comes to me, right? Right? Never any fighting over that. Never any over money or any of this type of stuff for 18 years. Think about that, right? It's very, very hard to do. Then we sell, and I have to stay. These are my guys that I've been with for 18 years, but but I got to stay. But I want to stay. And I wasn't ready to sell yet, so I wanted to stay. I I I was really messed up when we sold. This is your baby. So then, now Ari comes in, okay? And Ari has a reputation. But me and yep. Ari, he's been our agent for, you know, over 10 years. So mm-hmm. I know Ari, and I like Ari. So mm-hmm. we sit down. I'm a down. WME guy, by the way. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. So we, we have, uh, we, we, we talk about the strategy, walk through. There's no ego involved with either one of us. And look at the company in the last two years. We continue to go. You have to check your ego, man, when you're in any type of relationship. I always say this. You've got a kick out of this. You ever notice the guy with the biggest ego has the thinnest wallet? (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's really true. I didn't, but that's really good. (laughs) So, you know, I wrote a book called Don't Bullshit Yourself. Stop the Excuses That Are Holding You Back. And it's a New York Times bestseller. And one of the six, six big excuses that I cited in the book was ego. And how much ego gets in the way of it people's does. future. It's just unbelievable. But you mean you know, to tell me that were... Guns N' Roses can't get together and do a real tour? <laughs> the, think about the last 20 years and what those guys could have accomplished and what they could have done together. Is ego. The greatest right. It's ego. Stupidity. Yeah. So, so, you know, you deal with a lot of big personalities. Right. So you have to know when to put your ego aside. Yeah. So you, you're good at sharing the spotlight. These guys, these guys come out and talk shit every day about me. Everybody's disgruntled and unhappy in the fight business. Every, I could care less. <laughs> I could care less. Listen, so, there, there's, a, there, there's a system in the way that we run this business. And if you're on board, great. You're, you're going to do very well if you're talented enough and you're going to make a lot of money. It's not rocket science, okay? Yeah. We're going to call you and we're going to give you a date and we're going to give you a fight. If you take that opportunity... Good things are going to happen. Yep. If you don't, I don't give a shit. shit. Okay? That, that's up to you. It's your life. It's your career. You can do whatever you want to do. But you're under contract, so we'll extend your contract, and, and that's how it works. It's not rocket science. If you're really unhappy here, you're really unhappy, then fight out your contract and do something else. I mean, you, you, you know, you're, you're a businessman. Yep. Your whole life, you have to honor contracts. Absolutely. If you do not honor More contracts, forget about it. you got to honor handshakes. Right. Our name is I all we've got. I agree. That, so, that is so, true. So you know you're a good guy. Yes. I'm you a good know guy. you're a fat guy. Fair I, guy. I literally go to sleep every night 
and have no problems going to sleep. We've taken care of so many people and done so many things for so many people. And if you look at, you know, th- there, there is a ton of mythology out there in the world about, you know, people and what really goes on and everything a lot else. out there about you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and, and uh, it doesn't bother me one bit. Yeah, me I could care less. It, it just it means nothing to me. I know exactly who I am, and I know exactly what I've done and what I continue to do every day. Yeah, and that hug from your kids means more than anything. Exactly. It it's, it's true. Um, I'm with you, buddy. So, you know, from this conversation, you know, your story is an incredible story, how you just walked up to a promoter, forced him to put you under his wings. The first time you got involved in this brand, you bought it for how much money? Two million dollars. Two million. And what did Ari pay for it? Four point oh two five billion. In how many years? Eighteen. Eighteen years. You took a business from two million dollars to over four billion dollars. Yeah. And you did it being a good guy. And Thank you, you did it being fair. Right. And you did it by building other stars, not just yourself. Right. And sharing the spotlight with each other. That's a great legacy, Danny. You should be really freaking proud, but I'm proud Thank to you. be sitting here with you, buddy. This I appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. Thank you. Dana White, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't watched UFC, if you haven't gone online to the website or looked into Dana's past, there's a lot of inspiration here. This is a great guy who's built a multi-billion dollar company on one thing, passion, and the desire to learn and the desire to be the best. And he is. We'll be right back with my favorite part of the show audience call-ins and by the way if you want to be on the show it's easy send me an email to podcast at john Corey will respond to you and you could be on the podcast with me and i'll be right back with my first call don't shut down this podcast yet no excuses with john taffer continues next shut it down all right john new week new callers looks like we only have time for one caller so let's get into it we have Phoebe from New York, and she's looking to engage her customers with some new cocktail ideas. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, John. Um, my question for you was, do you have any whiskey or bourbon cocktail recommendations for customers who don't normally go for dark spirits? It's interesting that you'd say that. Uh, what are they drinking now? Uh, mostly light liquors like vodka or rums. Okay. Why would you want to move them to a whiskey drink? Whiskey costs, just, whiskey looking, costs you I'm more than vodka. So look, <laughs> looking for ways to better my bartending skills. Gotcha. Let's talk about this for a second. So whiskey is the number one growing spirit in the world right now. American whiskey is even number one in Europe. It's, the, its largest growth segment is with women. Whiskey sales with women are up now between, I, I don't know the exact number, but it's between 20 and 30%. It's huge. So what's happened with this explosion of bourbon and whiskey is all of the mixologists across the country have created unbelievable recipes and cocktail programs all based upon bourbon, uh, oat whiskey, blended whiskey, and different types of American whiskey, which is really, really hot. So if you'd want to find those recipes, the best thing for you to do is to go to either you can go to Bar Rescue, and we have a lot of them. We've done about 350 drinks on Bar Rescue, probably 50 or 60 of them are bourbon and whiskey drinks. You, you can find those uh, at, at Bar Rescue. Or, honestly, go to the websites of the greatest bourbon companies. If you go to Jack Daniels, they have a lot of recipes on their site. If you go to Jim Beam, they have a lot of recipes on their site. The reason why I suggest that you go to those pages is they are always looking for new drinks to promote their products with. They never do something that isn't tested or developed by the best mixologists in the world. And every recipe they give you is designed to present their product in the best way possible. So I would take a few minutes and I would Google all the big bourbon companies, the great bourbon companies, and pull some recipes off their sites and try some of them. Then what I would do is I would take a round cocktail tray. I would get some plastic solo one-ounce cups, little shot glasses, if you will, disposable. I'd make a couple of the cocktails. I'd put one cocktail in the middle of the tray so everybody sees what it looks like. And then I'd put 20 little samples around it. And I'd give them out for a few days in the bar. And if you put out a good drink and you sample it, people will start to try it. So the best tool you have, Phoebe, is to sample something. And if you sample it and they try it, then they'll order it. And it's fun to do that. You're a vodka guy. You never drink whiskey, do you? Nope. Okay, I want you to taste this whiskey cocktail. Tell me what you think. Try that, okay? I will. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Listen, I'd really love it if you'd be on the show. You can challenge me, argue with me, disagree with me, agree with me, whatever you like. But the more challenging, the better. Just send an email to podcast at com. 
podcast at johntaffer.com. Corey will open those emails. He'll set it up with you, and then you and I will talk on a podcast, and we'll have some fun. And by the way, while you're at it, don't forget to hit subscribe at Apple Podcasts or go to podcast.com or the Podcast One app, and you'll get your new episodes every Tuesday. Want to talk to John? Email him now at podcast at johntaffer.com. Boy, this was a lot of fun this week. Having Dana White was a blast. I thank you all for great audience call-ins. Keep those emails coming to podcast at johntaffer.com so we can get more of you on the podcast. And, of course, have a great President's Day. It was fascinating for me to learn about how the greatest presidents go the poorest or the richest and, and how polls mean nothing. It all comes down to situations. And it was a great lesson in that, certainly for me. I hope there was for you, too. Next week, I have Michael McGowan who just wrote the book, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent. I'm really excited about that. In my dreams when I was a kid, Corey, I always dreamed about being a secret agent. Right? Oh, yeah, so have I. Well, Mike actually was a secret agent, so I can't wait to talk to him. That's next week, and I'll see you all then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to No Excuses with John Taffer on Podcast One. Download new episodes every Tuesday here on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and at Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review. 